1: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On the pod today, we have Senator Cory Booker and the Senator elect from the state of Alabama, Doug Jones. Big day. Big week for Doug Jones. Also, we're going on tour. Everyone go to crooked.com slash events to see where we're going to be. Right after the new year, we're doing a quick trip to Europe. John, Tommy, and I are going to be in London, Stockholm, Oslo, and Amsterdam. Uh, so sign up for tickets there, and then when we come back, Dan, you'll be joining us, and we'll be going to we'll be right here in LA on February 3rd at the Dolby Theater, and then in February we got Vegas, Phoenix, and Denver. So go get some tickets. Crooked.com slash events
2: I will be the designated survivor while you guys are in Europe to make sure America. That's will important. Always have one pot safe America host because it's very possible Trump could close the borders on you.
1: I know, I know. Well, then you've got two episodes a week, Dan. So congratulations. <laughs> yep. Guys, we also have a new podcast, Keep It with Ira Madison, the third Daily Beast writer, Crooked contributor. It's a podcast about pop culture and politics, which Ira has referred to as Fox and Friends, but without the racism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the trailer is up on iTunes. You can subscribe today. It should be coming soon, a couple of weeks away, I think. But uh, it's going to be a great podcast. Ira's been doing practice podcasts here in the studio for the last month. It's outstanding. It's hilarious. Check it out. Also, the deadline for signing up for healthcare at healthcare.gov is the 15th, which is Friday. So if you want to sign up for healthcare, if you know someone who needs to sign up for healthcare, if you know someone who knows someone who needs to sign up for healthcare, please uh, let them know that they can sign up. Um, you can get a very affordable plan this year. The prices are great. And, you know, Donald Trump and the administration don't want you to know about this. But signups have outpaced the pace of signups in other years. But we're going to fall far short of other years because they've cut the enrollment period drastically. So over the next couple of days, if you can post on Facebook, if you can send out messages on Twitter, do everything you can to remind the people in your life to sign up at healthcare.gov. It's very, very important. All right. Let's talk about Alabama, Dan. Uh, Oh, winning. Winning. It's so nice. (laughs) In the single most consequential election since Donald Trump won the presidency, Doug Jones became the first Democrat in 25 years to win a Senate seat in Alabama, defeating the favored candidate of Donald Trump and the Republican National Committee, accused child molester Roy Moore. The Republicans' margin in the Senate is down to a single seat and control of the chamber is now a toss-up along with the House in 2018. Dan, you knew this was coming all along, right? (laughs) I've been predicting it for weeks. In fact... It probably got cut out of
2: a podcast a few months ago, but long before even the Roy Moore allegations came out, I was like, Doug Jordan's going to win. Yeah, so, no,
1: that's what's, obvious. That's what we've been saying here all the time. So what were you thinking leading up to the big win? Where, where were you? We were all here at the office watching the needle of doom, which ended up becoming the the needle of hope.
2: <laughs> well, I, I had two ways of thinking about it. I went through my normal election night process in the Trump era, which is... Nate Cohn gets me incredibly excited about the possibility a Democrat's going to win a seat they shouldn't win. And so, and of course, you, can, you know, Nate Cohn's like, I don't know. I'm looking at this and it seems like you'd rather be Doug Jones. And I was like, fucking Nate Cohn is going to do it to me again. And, <laughs> uh, but, and but it turned out like it, so you were watching it come in and it was very, it was just, it was just great. I th- still thought that we would have victory stolen from us just because the world is cruel and we You know, and Virginia, New Jersey went so well. I will say the one reason I thought Doug Jones might win, this is not based on data analytics or years in politics, is that I had an amazing tweet that I was (laughs) going to send if Roy Moore won. So you're like, either way,
1: you win. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I don't want to equate the two uh, because I I don't (laughs) think they're the same. But the tweet was, but. I did think that, like, it just seemed right that because I was so excited about this tweet that I would not get to send it, which was I was going to take the whoever declared the race first and just and do Senator Roy Moore parentheses R dash Kelly parentheses.
1: (laughs) That would have been the title of our really sad episode the next day. I know. know, But now now we're going to have to go with something. happier.
2: But now I get to do it both ways. Doug Jones wins, and I get to tell everyone how funny I thought I was. So it's
1: great. So that's the best outcome for America, I think. Um, It was weird. I felt good about everything that I was seeing, but I couldn't get out of my head that this was taking place in Alabama. And I say that just because of the, the partisan identification in Alabama, the sheer number of Republican voters knowing that, you know, even if you get a bunch of Republicans to peel away because Roy Moore is an accused child molester, you know that works in a state like Virginia or even a, maybe a state like Ohio or you know other states that Trump won. But you know Alabama, one of the reddest states in the in the entire country, with unbelievable numbers of Republican voters, you know Donald Trump wins it by twenty eight points. It's not like Donald Trump won it by five points. You know, it's just like that is a that is a climb. But I remember talking to our, you know, our friend Harry Enten from 538, and, uh, you know, Harry was saying, look, the polls have it within two and a half points. The average Senate poll dating back to 1998 has been the final poll average has been off by, you know, an average of five points. So he's like, we are well within the margin of a polling error here that would have... Jones win this thing and then so then so I had that in my mind, but I was like, don't let yourselves get your hope. don't get your hopes up too much. Then I see the exit polls come out. of course, you're not supposed to pay attention to the exit polls, but it says 30 percent African American turnout. of course, as we knew we were hoping for something like 25 26 percent. that's when we knew it would be a that's when that's what Jones campaign was hoping for 25 or 26. Obama gets 28 percent in 2012 in a presidential year. And then 30% of the electorate's African-American for Doug Jones. And so I allowed myself to get a little hopeful then. But then when the rest of the exit poll data came in and the returns start coming in, I see the CNN panel and it's, you know, including Axe and Saki and everyone else. They're on there and they're looking at the white vote and the percentage in the white vote. And they're like, I think even with this African-American vote turning out like this, I don't know if the white vote's gonna be enough for Doug Jones because he did not do that well among white voters. And so there was some real pessimism at the beginning of the night, on on cable at least. But then, then the needle started going. And then here at headquarters, everyone stayed and everyone's eyes were sort of glued to the needle and uh, every five seconds. So it was, it was exciting, it was pretty exciting.
2: Yeah, I mentioned this on Twitter, but I brought the needle up and Halle was like, nope, that's going down <laughs> you're not looking at the Because it's like, it's so cruel. It's like, it's pretty cruel. one minute, like Roy Moore is definitely winning. And then, uh, then Doug Jones is winning. And then, like, one county comes in. And I was listening to, it might have been John King on CNN's make this point, but Alabama is so racially polarized in its geographically that when precincts come in, they come in. Very strongly one where the, even if the overall county is split, mm. the precincts within the county are very strongly Jones or Moore. Uh, and so as a chunk of precincts would come, in, would move the needle dramatically because the models sort of expect the count. They, they think of that these five counties are – or these five precincts are 30% of this county, but they're not on average, right? Yeah. And so it was moving. We were just like, no, this is too cruel. We can't do this. And – but it, you know, it was the thing that was interesting about it is I had the similar. I had conversations with people who had some experience in trying to win races in states not as as red as Alabama, but southern states. And the math is just so hard between the number of Republicans you need to win, the how high the African American turnout has to be, et cetera. And it's just you. It's really feels like drawing an inside straight. But that presumes equal turnout on both sides, right? Right. It presumes that all white people are turning out at the same rate, not conservative whites and moderate whites or liberal whites. And just like Virginia, what has been clear here is the Trump base is deflated. And it's like when the Trump, Republicans, conservative Republicans are not turning out at the same rate as Democrats are. And that's, why these? Why Doug Jones wins, it's why the margin in Virginia is, was much bigger than the polls expected. And, and, you know, I saw a stat yesterday that Democrats are out – in every race that's happened thus far, Democrats have outperformed their historic party average by uh, 12 points on average among all those races. And that's a huge deal um, and just speaks to a real enthusiasm. And sometimes that will be enough – like it was in Alabama. Sometimes it will not be enough like Georgia 6, but it's a very positive sign going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to put it in perspective, Doug Jones got about 95%, a little more than 95% of Hillary Clinton's raw vote total. That is, I mean, Hillary Clinton's vote was in a presidential year where turnout is so much bigger than a midterm election, never mind a special election. And so he gets almost 95, more than 95 percent of Hillary's raw vote total, and Roy Moore got about half of Trump's. So uh, Patrick Ruffini, the Republican pollster, ran the numbers here. Compared to the midterm in 2014, which is a comparable turnout scenario, 200,000 Republicans didn't vote. 200,000. You know, Jones's victory is about. 2,000 votes, a little more than 2,000 votes, <laughs> 200,000 Republicans didn't vote. So if even half of those Republicans turned out to vote, Jones wouldn't have won. I mean, I think that the the, the the collapse in Republican turnout has to be one of the big stories of what happened on Tuesday night. Now, because they didn't turn out, the coalition that shows up for Jones – Mattered a lot, and that coalition, like we said, is made up of 29 percent of the electorate was African Americans. They broke for Doug Jones by 96 to four, which is incredible. I think Black women were like 98 to two, and I think Black men were 90 to something. So huge, huge, huge turnout from African Americans. And then you look at some of these counties, like where Huntsville is. You know, it was pl- uh, uh, Republicans won by 17 points in 2016. Doug Jones wins by. 17 points on Tuesday night. Huge, huge swing. Uh, Birmingham was Democrats plus 7 in 16. It was Democrats plus 38 on Tuesday night. And then Shelby County, which is the Birmingham suburbs, Republicans won by 53 points in 2016. Tuesday night, it was only 14 points. So just cutting into those margins in the suburbs and in the cities in Alabama was, uh, was really the story of this race.
2: Yeah, and I think the other important story is African American turnout. You
1: know, yeah. Dave Wasserman tweeted
2: these were sort of raw numbers during the election, but that turnout in heavily African American counties was seventy-two to seventy-seven percent of this of turnout from the sixteen presidential race, which is unbelievable for that would be unbelievable in a midterm, let alone a special election. But there's also other side is the turnout was only fifty-five to sixty percent in rural white counties. So, you know there were a gazillion stories in the days leading up to the election about, are African-American voters engaged? And I would hope— There was quite a—and was there was—a
1: lot of those stories were laced with pessimism about the answer to that Yes,
2: that, that was the whole—the whole point is they are not engaged. And, and the, you saw the same stories in Virginia. The, all the things is when will— Northam's not reaching out to African-American voters. Doug Jones is not reaching out to African-American voters. We went to Virginia or Alabama. We found five black people and we asked them about the election and they didn't know it. So that means African-American voters are not uh, turning out. And that is just – we should stop having those stories because there's two parts of those stories. One is African-Americans and African-American women have been driving the Democratic electoral victories in right. the past but also particularly in in 2017. Second, it's also important to remember that African-Americans are turning out at high levels and they're doing it despite systemic actions taken by states like Alabama to suppress their vote. And then the third thing here is that we there's like this pre blame casting, which is, well, if African-Americans don't, you know, they don't just just decide to go vote, then Democrats will lose and it's on them. And. So we always try to – we pre-blame them, you know, not we, but the media pre-blames them for potential losses and then doesn't give them the credit when they actually deliver the victory um, as they did here. And as a part of that, we also don't – in the cases where African-American turnout is not the levels at which you need it to be to win, that's also on the candidate, right? The candidate has to give them a reason to vote, and Doug Jones did that. Ralph Northam did that. Justin Fairfax and Mark Herring did that. So I just think it's like, can we RIP the takes on the pre-election takes on African-American vote in this country?
1: Uh, I certainly hope so. Also, it's like, it doesn't just, uh, this isn't just magic that African-Americans suddenly wake up and turn out and go to the go to the polls, they're incredibly organized. There was, there was an incredible organization on the ground. I know the NAACP contributed this. I know that a lot of the Democratic Party and Doug Jones and his campaign contributed to this. But um, And you can see this in African-American churches throughout Alabama. Or you could see it right before the uh, election. There was an incredible effort to organize and mobilize the African-American vote from within the African-American community. And uh, it was a very successful effort, but it was a very tireless effort over the last over this entire campaign. And I do No, you're right. I think the Democratic Party cannot ever take for granted uh, the African-American vote since it has uh, certainly delivered this unbelievably important election to the party. But I also I you know I also think that like this idea about the, you know, this debate, this raging debate, whether we should focus on the African-American vote or we should focus on the white vote or we should focus on women's vote. Like I think to win a majority in any of these states you need to do all of the above, you know, and you need to have a message that can somehow attract African-American voters and, and, and make them decide that they should go to the polls and organize, but also do the same for for white voters and uh, for college-educated white voters. And, you know, tr- at least try to battle to a draw with Republicans or not get, not get beat too, too, too badly among non-college-educated white voters, which, you know, Doug Jones did better. He certainly lost white voters by a lot. He even lost college-educated white voters in a state like Alabama. But he did better than other Democrats had in the past among those voters, along with tremendous turnout and tremendous margins among African-American voters and Latino voters as well. It was a small but uh, important population of Latino voters in uh, Alabama as well, 5%, I think.
2: Yeah, and what Doug Jones did, I think, to his credit is he— focused his campaign and his words on, quote-unquote, kitchen table
1: issues. That's right.
2: And kip- kitchen table issues, whether that's the economy, that's education, that's healthcare matter to all voters, mm-hmm. right? And this is one of the problems of politics in the, quote-unquote, data analytics age, right, is you are almost burdened by too much information, right, which is right. like these are the three things that – Married African American women over fifty care about. And these are the the slight these are the three slightly different or very different things that married white women with college degrees care about. Right. And you like you have to tell a, you have to tell a coherent story that is is broadly appealing. There can be there are very specific issues that Doug Jones did not shy away from that are very specific to the African American community around voter suppression and other things. I but mean, he also he talk had, in Alabama. He a coherent story.
1: Yeah, in Alabama, he you know his the thing you heard from him all the time was how he prosecuted the KKK for the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing with you know with four little African American girls. He, he talked about that every single day. He didn't shy away from that because uh, it had a, a racial element to that issue. He talked about it everywhere, and you know it, it's he did better among white voters than previous Democrats did. So that should tell you something, you know.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing I'd say about what Doug Jones did very well is he ran as his authentic self. Doug they, Jones is a progressive democrat. He didn't right. he didn't like look for a quote-unquote sister soldier moment where he tried to do some, you know, sacrifice some progressive cause on the altar for conservative voters. He just ran as himself and that was appealing to enough people to win. And that's sort of like politics is a lot is is, a, is not as complicated as we make it. If you run as yourself and you run a good campaign and who you are is appealing to enough voters, you can win. And it, where you get in trouble is when you try to change who you are to appeal to try to get votes. And it's to his credit, there was there were a lot of ways a, De- a Democrat could have run in this race that it would have been a disaster, and Doug Jones just ran as Doug Jones. And it sounds simple, but it's not what we do often enough in, in politics.
1: I think that's incredibly important. And the other thing he did was he exhibited incredible message discipline. He, you know, he was tweeting right up until. The last day, I you know, I started this campaign talking about kitchen table issues. I'm going to end it that way. When all the bullshit was in the news about Roy Moore, every new development, Steve Bannon comes down and says X about this person, and Donald Trump comes to Pensacola, and this new story breaks, and this accuse. he could have taken the bait so many times on so many different issues that were in the headlines in D.C., on Twitter, things that we were all talking about— and he didn't take the bait because he knew his message was here's who I am here's what I did with my life here's what I'm proud of in terms of my record and also these are the issues that I've been talking to people in Alabama about all over the state and these are the issues that I'm campaigning on and he was relentless in that message and I think sometimes in this media age and campaigns it is very tempting for Democrats to respond to the headline of the day the headline that is being discussed on cable news the attack of the day all that other bullshit because, you know, a lot of them grew up in this rapid response environment where as soon as something happens, you have to hit back and hit back hard and talk about every single controversy that's out there. And the Doug, Doug Jones campaign didn't do that. They had message discipline every single day because they knew that that's what people in Alabama cared about. They wanted him to talk about their issues, they didn't want him to talk about the bullshit that was in the headlines all the time.
2: And you know what? Just thank you, Doug Jones, because we needed this. I mean, you and I. Pod Save America, we needed it just because we care passionately about this. But I just – like try to picture the alternative scenario where proud bigot accused child molester wins the Senate and like what that says to everyone about America. Like we we walked right up to the brink of heading into something even more terrible than we're currently in and Doug Jones, by being a good guy and a very good candidate – did something that was going to give us all something to feel hope for. And it's really – because it's not just like, yes, we want Doug Jones's vote in the Senate. That's incredibly important. It makes it easier to win the Senate in 2018, which also incredibly important. But it's also we do not have to live in a country where a disgusting human being like Roy Moore is in the United States Senate every day. And that is something we can all be grateful for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and you know, this is – this is a win for every single person who gave money to Doug Jones, who went to Alabama, who knocked on doors, who's cared about this race, who's asked us about this race. How do we get involved? We've heard from so many people who sent us pictures of the, themselves campaigning in Alabama. And um, this goes to show you that if uh, even, even when the victory seems improbable, if you are willing to work for it and to fight for it, uh, it can happen. And, you know... There's going to be other bad days like uh like there were when Trump won and there's going to be bad days from now until 2018 and from now until 2020, but you got to take those bad days and just move past them and keep on working because then you get days like Tuesday night. And you know, that's that's a big message.
2: It's such an argument for running for office no matter what the odds. Yeah. Um you know, I sort of think about Barack Obama in 2007 talking about his decision to run, which Kate, like his it all seems like it makes complete makes complete sense now because he won but at the time everyone thought he was moving too fast right. right that he was it was too soon he you know he was in a hurry he was picking the wrong time but you can't win if you don't run and so you got to get in the race you don't know what's going to happen i also think about uh chris coons who's the center from Del- for my home state of delaware who mm-hmm. He decided to run against Mike Castle, who was had been the House member in Delaware forever, and was, would have everyone assumed would get would crush him. But he was like, "I'm just going to run because I have stuff to say, and I'm going to get out there." And then Mike Castle loses a crazy primary, and Chris Coons beats Christine O'Donnell, a, a Tea Party crazy candidate, and wins. And it's like you. You don't know when you get in the race what the race is going to look like six a year later, six months later. It's just if you run, you're not you definitely can't win if you don't run. So right. you might as well run.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. So, and if you want to run for office, if you're thinking about something, check out Run for Something. We had uh, one of the founders, Amanda Lippman, on the pod uh, on Thanksgiving, and uh, it's an inspiring organization that's helping first time candidates run. So definitely check that out. So what, let's talk about what this means for our good friend Donald Trump. <laughs> Two-time loser. But one of the only presidents in history who somehow endorsed twice in an election and lost both times. He endorsed Luther Strange, lost that one, and then because Roy Moore won and then he decided to back Roy Moore, and then he lost that one. Good job, Donald Trump.
2: It's almost as if Donald Trump won the presidency by accident with the help of russia and it wasn't the case that he was a political genius who understood uh the far right and his base better than anyone possible
1: yeah or that or that uh his his political svengali steve bannon is a political genius steve bannon's whose great political genius is a strategy where you basically tell scared white people that dark-skinned foreigners are the cause of all their problems that's it that's steve bannon's brilliance he really came to that conclusion that you can scare people about uh dark skinned hordes taking their jobs away. That's a it's a real first. No one's ever done that before. That is the fucking beginning and end of Steve Bannon's genius. The guy knows nothing else but that. So that's there you go. That's your strategy, Steve Bannon. Fucking he is asshole. Such,
2: such a shameless <laughs> clown. I mean, it's just the fact that he is not chagrined by backing a child molester. Basically, scaring He has no the shame. Center he's not chagrined.
1: He lies all the yeah, time. Who cares? Not at
2: all. He's just hes just like, no, this is – I mean, he blamed Mitch McConnell for this loss, which – look, I enjoy anyone blaming Mitch McConnell for anything because <laughs> Mitch McConnell is terrible and we'll – we have some things to say about that later. But and But what is interesting about what Bannon did, it wasn't just that he backed Roy Moore. Because, I mean, that's just, I mean, it's morally disgusting.
1: And plenty of Republicans Um, backed Roy Moore, by the way, that it weren't Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. Uh, Looking at you, Republican National Committee, and like half the Senate.
2: (laughs) Can we just pause for one second on the Republican National Committee that, (laughs) that Donald Trump made Ronna Romney McDaniel remove the Romney from her name?
1: Yeah, she gave up her name and decided to throw her party's weight behind an alleged child molester. Big win, big win for Ronna McDaniel, <laughs> formerly Romney McDaniel. McDaniel. <It's> just, <laughs>
2: just so, I mean, just it's a as someone. I wish I remember who put this, who tweeted this, but it would it is that Trump does not take people's dignity; he makes them hand it over willingly. Yeah, he does. So it's like, and they do. I'm going to back. Oh, it's just so terrible. But so Bannon, you would think this would reduce Bannon's power in Washington. But it's not going to. It's just not. Because what he – what Bannon actually did was he scared – there were things the Republicans could have done to save this seat, right? Yeah. They could have gotten Roy Moore to drop out, which he – one of the reasons he did not do is that Bannon and Hannity were on his side. Right. Because Hannity was close to – telling. Hannity basically almost called on, on Roy Moore to drop out, and then Bannon called Hannity and told him to stop, and Hannity – just be taking his marching orders from Bannon and decides not to do that. So Hannity stays in the race or Morris stays in the race. And then there could have been a write-in campaign, mm-hmm. right? Where they could have got Luther Strange or Jeff Sessions or someone else to be a write-in candidate. Because that at least would give you a shot at – at least like the the fear for Republicans is that would cause you to lose the race because you'd split the Republican vote. But what it would have done is you would have lost the race, but you would have been it made it very clear that you were opposing –
1: yeah, you officer. would have had they would have been able to hold their heads high in the Republican Party for yeah. once in the last ten, fifteen years.
2: Yeah, and that is a very reasonable. You know, some Democrats are like, "Why won't you endorse Doug Jones?" And I sort of understand that if you endorse someone else other than Roy Moore, right? Right. If you say we want Luther Strange, he's probably going to lose, but that's who we're going to we're going to spend money on, we're going to fight for, and but they didn't do that, so they found themselves with the – Steve Bannon with the Republican Party and Donald Trump in the worst of all worlds where they have have endorsed an accused child molester who was also a bigot towards homosexuals, other races, doesn't believe women can vote, doesn't believe Muslims can be in Congress. I mean you can do the uh, bill of particulars on his horribleness and they still don't get his vote for tax cuts, which is what they really wanted. So great job, Steve Bannon. Great job, Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, and it's funny, you know, Steve Bannon's like, oh, Mitch McConnell and, and, and the establishment got the Democrat they wanted. But it, it's, you know, it's funny for Bannon to say that, but it's not really true because a lot of these Republicans, you know, there's, you got people like Jeff Flake who donated to Doug Jones, some other, peop- some other people in the party who said, you know, obviously he shouldn't come to the Senate. Good for them. They did the right thing. There's a whole bunch of Republicans who, who did want him to come to the Senate and who didn't want Doug Jones to win. And they're going to have to live with that for the rest of their political careers and their lives. I mean, for for 2018, for 2020, the Republican Party cannot hide from the fact that their party, the the RNC, their party and their president and many of their senators and congressmen endorsed an alleged child molester, homophobic, didn't thinks homosexuality should be illegal. All the bill of particulars: shouldn't, Muslims shouldn't serve in Congress, women shouldn't vote. Most amendments after the Bill of Rights shouldn't be in the Constitution. They wanted that person to serve in the United States Senate. They cannot walk away from that.
2: For the rest of time. The, the that is a time. political burden, and that is a moral burden, and that is something that they will have to explain forever. And it's our job to make them continue to explain it, but that is, that is on Mitch McConnell. He had a choice. He could have tried to defeat Roy Moore. He has a super PAC at his beck and call. He didn't do that. He, his hope was he could say some bad things about Roy Moore and still get his vote because Mitch McConnell will always pick the most cynical, least moral option in any in any particular case. And so he chose that and he he owns that and they all own it. And even if they didn't endorse him and campaign for him like Donald Trump did, they made a choice and they own that choice.
1: So what does this tell us about 2018? Um <laughs> You you wrote in the outline, is it a positive sign or is this an outlier because Moore was a racist clown? To which my answer is, there's going to be a whole lot more racist clowns <laughs> running <laughs> in 2018 if, uh, if Steve Bannon and the Republican base get their way. Like, you look in Nevada and if we think that, you know, Dirty Dean Heller is going to survive a primary against uh, Danny Tarkanian, who's the, you know, Bannon back candidate that's running against him... I don't know, Heller's one of the least popular senators in the country right now. And then you've got Danny Tarkanian who uh he called Roy Moore's accusers liars, paid for by the Washington Post. He just campaigned with a pimp who owns brothels in Vegas. I mean, this we got another crazy in fucking Nevada. We got Kelly Ward in Arizona, who's the and Back candidate, who is a InfoWars guest who held a town hall with constituents who thought that uh, you know, the government was spraying chemtrails on them and trying to poison them. There's some government conspiracy (laughs) about that, that she was entertaining at a town hall. I mean, I don't think we've seen the last of Roy Moore-type candidates, even if they're not quite as disgusting as Roy Moore.
2: I mean, you got a lot of Roy Moores without the child sexual abuse allegations running out there. And we know, as you list, as we talk about the fact that Donald Trump's in the White House, Steve Bannon's calling the shots, Danny Tarkanian, info wars guests running, Roy Moore being backed by the bulk of the Republicans. Here's the fact, which is the Republican Party is a zombie party. Yeah, it is dead, and it just doesn't know it yet. Now it controls all the levers of power, so that is a weird paradox of our times. But you know, I mean, this is the David Brooks wrote this, and. It pains me to quote David Brooks on this podcast, but every once in a while, he's right. He talked about the party is rotting. I think he actually understated the case. It is rotted. It is over. You know, the modern Republican Party that Tim Miller, you know, belongs to or in hopes for that Paul Ryan thinks he's in charge of, that's dead. That is gone. It, the future is Steve Bannon and Roy Moore and all of that. That is I – mean, that, that they made this choice. They actually made it. Years ago, long before Donald Trump came on the scene, they made this choice when they decided they wanted the votes of birthers more than they're willing to call out birtherism. They decided this when they when they wanted the votes of racists who objected to Barack Obama as opposed to calling out racism. And that is where we are now. And that that is the Republican Party. And it is we need two functioning parties. But right now, the Republican Party is is dead for as far as as the eye can see. They may still win power because of gerrymandering and a massive financial advantage from a hollowed out campaign finance system. But the idea that this is the party of Reagan or supply side economics or all of that, that shit is long gone. It is, it's a party of racial animus, full stop.
1: Yeah. No, and the question is, can that party or how long can that party hold on to power and where can it hold on to power? Because, you know, I think you could make an argument that if the, we always used to talk about the obama coalition showing up but now we talk about let's talk about the trump coalition if the trump coalition which is basically mostly mostly non-college educated white voters with some college educated white voters that's about it that's the trump coalition um and the college educated voters are very very republican and if that coalition shows up in the numbers it did in 2016 then Republicans can continue to win states like Ohio, Iowa, possibly Michigan and Pennsylvania, you know, in states like that, that, that won Donald Trump the presidency. And that becomes very problematic. And states like Missouri that, you know, where Claire McCaskill's up in 2018, you've got Joe Manchin up in West Virginia, you've got a tough race in Indiana. So, you know, there's still there's still a threat to hold on to power. But what, we're, what we've seen in Alabama and what we saw in Virginia is that this coalition just isn't showing up, that they're not turning out to vote. And I don't know you know, how to gauge that kind of turnout, the Republican turnout in 2018, 2020, and beyond, because I don't think it's... It's certainly not automatic for us, and it's hard to determine how many of those voters show up or don't show up, but it does seem like our fate, in some ways, hinges on that.
2: Yes, we need... Because we don't make choices on the basis of national popular vote, right? If we... If it was just we're going to have a national election and then we're going to take the popular vote, we're going to allocate that Congress among that vote.
1: Yeah, we'd be Democrats
2: are going to Democrats are going to win that. Right. The problem is is how is two things. One is it is one is just straight. It's not even gerrymandering. It's straight population distribution. You have more younger people who tend to be Democrats moving to cities. Right. And so their vote they're They are diluting their vote by living with people who are ideologically similar. And that that is a problem. And then you have an electoral college problem, which we obviously did not foresee, but the turning blue of the Sun Belt and the Southeast and even the South, including Texas, is moving slower than the turning red of the Rust Belt. And that was a re- recipe to get Donald Trump over 270. Now, the question will be... Can we turn out at a high enough number to un- overcome those two barriers, both in 2018 and 2020? It is very possible because Donald Trump won the presidency, but it's actually it's an amazing thing. that It's actually probably easier to win the presidency than it is to win the House because of the presidency is not gerrymandered.
1: Right. And now what's interesting about 2018 is it may be an easier path for us uh, than usual. Because the road to the House majority runs through places like California, where there's, you know, we have the Crooked Seven. These seven Republicans who are in districts where Hillary Clinton won. They're districts with a lot of the same college-educated white voters who have been peeling away from Republicans in recent elections. Uh, It runs through places like the suburbs of Texas cities like Austin and Dallas and Houston, in places like North Carolina, in places like Florida. So um, a lot of these sort of sunbelt districts, and then, of course, for Senate races in places like Arizona and Nevada. So a lot of these places that have been trending bluer over the years are exactly where we need to win House seats back in 2018 to retake the House. You know, the Senate map proves a challenge, not because of the states we now have to flip to win the majority, which is uh, Nevada and Arizona, which, you know, are trending bluer. Nevada is a blue state. Um, but, you know, some of these states where Donald Trump won, where Democrats are trying to hold on to their seats, which, you know, Democratic in, you know, incumbent senators tend to have an advantage and tend to rarely lose in elections where the opposite party is in power. So we do have that going for us. But, you know, those are some those are some pretty tough states that we're trying to hang on to in the Senate map.
2: I think Alabama... If you just to get back to like what Alabama specifically means for 2018 is mm-hmm. that the coalition that delivered you know part of the take after Virginia was it's Virginia. It's a state Hillary won. You know it's it has been proved resistance to to Trump politics because of the allocation with of the, within the state population of uh, white voters with a college education. And so it doesn't really tell you anything. It's sort of where the Democrats are holding serve. Alabama is different. Now, there's no doubt that Roy Moore is a particularly bad candidate, and Doug Jones probably doesn't win against someone else. But that is the same argument the Democrats, including some on this podcast, made about Scott Brown's win in Massachusetts in 2010. Right. Right. was that uh, Scott Brown took Kate Kennedy's seat, that Martha Coakley was a particularly bad candidate, unemployment was very high, and we tried to treat it as a black swan event, but it actually foretold – the voters that delivered Massachusetts to Scott Brown were the same voters who delivered the House to Republicans uh, nine months later. Right. And so I, I'd be very worried if I was a Republican. Doesn't yeah. mean Democrats are going to take the House, but if you stand in a million things, so to between now and then, but if you stand here today, I'd be very concerned about how amped up Democrats are and how deflated the Trump base is for people not named Trump. And that is, it's an interesting thing because... You get a lot in the – you know when Obama was president about, well, Obama can't – does great when he's on the ballot but can't turn out as voters for other people. And we may be seeing a bigger thing here about – they may say more – less about Obama or Trump and something about just how amped up turnout is among those in the opposition and subdued it is by people who are not. And it's also worth noting that Donald Trump's approval rating is bad. He was in the exit polls – had a net favorability of 0 in Alabama a state he won by 30 points.
1: Yeah, if you if you exactly if that's your net in Alabama you're in trouble. So, Republicans uh know that they're in trouble and so they are trying to take whatever they can on their way out the door by uh rushing this tax bill, this awful fucking tax bill through Congress as fast as possible. Mitch McConnell is not wasting any time. Um it seems like the house and the senate have a deal on a tentative deal on how to reconcile the two different bills and reconcile the differences it looks like the package that's emerging from the conference committee cuts taxes for rich people by even more i guess the compromise was <laughs> the the senate cut taxes for rich people by x amount the house cut it by this amount and they decided to go lower than even more than both chambers <laughs> even bigger tax cut. So the top rate goes from 39.6 to 37, the corporate tax rate uh is going to be at 21% from 35 instead of 20. State and local tax deduction is at 10 it's not eliminated but it's a it's at 10,000 first 10,000 for property and income. Uh the mortgage deduction, the cap there is $750,000 for new homes. The estate tax exemption is doubled to $10 million, as opposed to eliminate it altogether. And then they have eliminated some of these awful, you know, they were going to take away the deductions for, you know, graduate students and medical expenses. And I guess they're keeping those in there. Those are some of the more unpopular provisions. So still a really shitty bill uh, that's cutting taxes for rich people by, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, um, you know, raising middle-class taxes on some people, not giving a ton of people Almost any tax cut at all, you know, and uh, and increasing the deficit. So that's what we got.
2: Yeah, wonderful. I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, it's they took a they put aside the policy implications of how bad the House and Senate versions were, and they right. were really fucking bad. But they actually managed to forge together. They lose the Alabama Senate seat, right after losing Virginia, after staring down the barrel of terrible poll numbers, and they look. They took two bills that were shitty politically and decided that their response would be to put them together to make an even shittier bill politically. (laughs) This is actually a – this bill will be less popular and more easy for Democrats to run on than the other two bills, which were really unpopular and really easy for Democrats to run on.
1: Yeah, and that's because this entire process wasn't about policymaking. It was about cobbling together just enough votes to pass the bill. And so when that's your primary strategy, all you're doing is going to individual senators or House members and saying, what do you need to get to yes? And then they just throw that in the bill, whatever it is. I mean, that's that's all this is about, right?
2: Yeah, and it's also interesting that a lot of times the way that process works is people try to deliver things that help them with voters in their states or districts. Like, right. please remove this provision that uh, hurts Widget manufacturing because the largest widget manufacturer is in my district. But that's not how the Republicans approached this. They approached it with, I need to do this favor for this group of donors. So please add that in. So it became like that to get people to yes, they had to make it more favorable to Sheldon Adelson, the Kochs.
1: Hedge uh, fund managers.
2: Exactly. Right. And so this was not about buying – Helping finding ways to something like the the sort of horse trading for provisions that are helpful to individual states and districts usually is also not a good policymaking process. But you kind of understand the logic of some group of people are going to be helped, even if, you know, so you're arguing for that. That's not what's happening here. It is we need to give as many billionaires as many things as they need so they can give us enough money to try to survive the Democratic wave in
1: 2018. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so the, the schedule here is they're not telling people the exact details, though. You know, a lot of them have leaked out, um, but they're not telling all the senators and members these details until Friday. They want to vote on Monday. though we'll see if they're ready by then. Um, and so now there's this whole thing where, you know, they're not seating. They want to do the vote before Doug Jones is seated, because if Doug Jones is seated, then they only have one vote to spare. Corkers a no. They can only lose three votes. They could only lose two more. Now they've lost Luther Strange if Doug Jones is seated, and then you know they've promised Collins all of these provisions on health care to make up for the fact that they're trying to partially repeal Obamacare. So they're trying to pass these provisions to shore up subsidies and give more money that she demanded. And so far they're not they're not voting on those provisions first. And so you know they're now they're refusing to seat Doug Jones, which is insane because. In 2010, when Scott Brown won the Senate seat, they decided not to vote on the Affordable Care Act until Scott Brown was seated when he won a special election. And Scott Brown said, seat me without delay. And Republicans, of course, they all argued for that. And, you know, even Democrats stood up and said, yeah, we should wait until Scott Brown is seated to continue on this legislation. So there's ample precedent to seat the new senator in a special election right away, especially when there's a, a vote of such consequence coming up. And yet Mitch McConnell is charging ahead.
2: I also vaguely recall a man who looked a lot like Mitch McConnell holding open a Supreme Court seat for an entire fucking year mm. because he, quote, wanted the voters to have their voices heard on who this Supreme Court justice was. And in this case, by the well-known mcconnell garland standard the voters of alabama fucking voted and they right. voted for someone who did not support this tax bill over someone who did and their vote is going to be nullified by mitch mcconnell to jam this thing through and the fact the how little the press and the political world is an uproar over this is both it's really infuriating But it also is explanatory in the sense that the press presumes such amoral cynicism from Mitch McConnell that it's like, of course he would do that. Why would he wait? And they benefit from that because the bar of expectations is so low for how they behave that it's just like, yeah, of course he's going to do it. Right. And like we were I was complaining about on Twitter and a bunch of reporters were like, why would McConnell wait? He held open a Supreme Court seat. That's not the fucking point. If right. if Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi did a similar thing, the press would be in fucking up in arms over it. Yeah, the, because the, they expect the Democrats to play by the rules. And we just now presume Republicans don't give a fuck about the rules. It's like so we're just going to like let him get away with it. This it's fairly I mean, it's terrible. I'm very worked up about this
1: the cynicism is baked in well it also but it, it speaks to something else now i mean at the same time we're talking about this we have a debate about a government shutdown and uh the democrats as we've said many times on this podcast have all the leverage here the republicans need democratic votes to fund the government for a full year beyond you know a couple weeks at a time or a couple months at a time which is what they've been doing so they need democratic votes Republicans and Donald Trump have promised to vote on the DREAM Act because 800,000 young Americans are at risk of deportation when March rolls around. And yet, I am seeing everywhere Democrats backing off their promise to withhold their votes unless uh, for government funding unless they get a vote on the DREAM Act. Why is that happening? Because they're worried that they'll be blamed for a government shutdown do you think fucking mitch mcconnell is worried that he's gonna get blamed for not seating doug jones that he's gonna get charged with the process foul from the press he doesn't give a fuck why are democrats so worried about this like i know i know they're looking at polls that say yes the dream act is widely popular it's got bipartisan support throughout the country and even in congress but if you ask people should you shut the government down over the dream act it's not as popular Right. I get that. I also bet if you polled people and said, should the newly elected senator of Alabama have a voice in the Senate and be seated or should he be delayed until the Republicans get to take a vote on their very unpopular tax bill? That would also be. Uh, we know what the re- results of that poll would be as well. But Mitch McConnell doesn't give a fuck.
2: Here would be my message to the Democrats. The morning Joe panel is not your base. Who That is not – like here's who wants you to stand up and fight here. It is the people who knocked doors, who made phone calls, who made millions of dollars in small-dollar donations for people like Doug Jones and Ralph Northam and everyone else. Who cares what the Washington press says about this? It is not going to matter – if you stand up and fight, because you can win. It's like no one in Washington knows what leverage they have. Lisa Murkowski. Thank you, Lisa Murkowski, for saving healthcare. I appreciate that. But last night she tweets, I care so much about Chip. I will do everything in my power to make sure Chip is fully funded. Oh, really? How about don't vote for the tax bill until Chip is funded? That's because easy. they can't do it without you. That's leverage. Why don't you do that? That definitely falls under the category of everything in your power.
1: Marco Rubio, too. Marco Rubio saying uh, he wants, you know, a, a bigger child tax credit. He's been wanting that forever. Good for Marco Rubio. It's the, it's a, It's a right policy to want a bigger child tax credit. So someone asked him yesterday, you know, do you get it? What's going to happen? He said, if they don't do something about this, leadership knows where I stand. Yeah, they do. You stand with them no matter what they do because you're too because you never vote against this bill and everyone knows it. Though you could, Marco Rubio, if he wanted to get that in the bill, he could easily threaten that he wouldn't vote for the bill. He'd get it.
3: Yeah.
2: Marco Rubio is a passive participant in his own political career. <laughs> it's like he, he doesn't believe he has any agency. He's just like, This is what I said. And I said it. Sadly. Yeah. It's like do something. Oh, people make me so mad sometimes we should be happy, Doug Jones won
1: I know, and look i mean it's uh, I think that I mean Democrats were on the floor yesterday screaming about McConnell needing to seat Doug Jones, and they should, but you know it it is in it is in mitch McConnell 's hand, and um he can only be shamed out of doing this, and Democrats are shaming him um you know, I saw it where we'll ask Doug Jones about it, but it doesn 't seem like Doug Jones wants to push this at all. We saw him on the Today show, he was sort of waffling on this but you know at the end of the day it's in Mitch McConnell's hands and um like you said certainly the press isn't making a big deal of it so because they just expect him to do something this diabolical so that's what we got but everyone should keep uh keep yelling about it
2: yeah i'm going to make one i just want to make one caveat on the shutdown stuff on democrats we are basing what we are saying on reports and not actual statements from democratic leaders and so right. it could it could be that's right everyone should hold them accountable and listen to it and it could be and it's actually very possible that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have a plan here and there have been many times over the years you know Schumer was not the leader when Obama was president but Nancy Pelosi was the leader the whole time and there are many times I would sort of look at what Nancy Pelosi was doing and be like what I don't get this this is wrong and then in the end because she is a master legislator she had a, she had a plan all along and it was the right plan so if democrats do what the reports in Politico and elsewhere are suggesting they're going to do i think that is a mistake if they have a plan different than that then i look forward to seeing that plan
1: right no we should say there you know all these stories also say that there are ongoing negotiations here so maybe there is a plan and you know we know from you and i being in the white house on the inside that sometimes you can't Talk about what's going on and you know there's going to be a good outcome and you're getting all kinds of pressure for not speaking out or doing something earlier. But you're like, OK, well, we have to do this because this negotiation is happening and we're going to have a good outcome. Like, So I get that. I think if the Democrats keep if we keep pushing these government funding deadlines, like we keep vote to keep the government open for another month and then wait to have this fight in another month or in another month after that. You know, I think it's a mistake to keep punting it, but I don't think that's the ultimate mistake. The ultimate mistake would be if the Democrats vote for a year-long funding bill without getting this vote on the DREAM Act. That, to me, is, like, I don't know. You know, if they may take that vote only with the promise that, yeah, in the future there'll be a vote on the DREAM Act, I see that as a huge fucking mistake. But, um, you know, if from now until then, they are trying to negotiate something. You know, and they and they do so in good faith, and they figure this out, then then great. But they have a lot. All I'm saying is, Democrats have a lot of leverage right now, and they should use it. Donald Trump
2: is a liar and a con man, so
1: yeah, don't trust him. Taking
2: taking a promise for a vote later based on something Donald Trump said to you is that ain't good enough for me.
1: Right. Okay. Well, we have a senator elect and a senator coming up, so we will ask both of them about all of this when we come back. We will talk with Senator Elect Doug Jones.
4: Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash PSA.
1: All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates' committee. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally.
2: Take an average of the polls.
1: To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at slash friends. On the pod today, we have the newest senator from the state of Alabama, Senator elect Doug Jones. Doug, congratulations.
3: Thank you. Thanks very much. An exciting time, and I appreciate you guys having me back home. Absolutely. So, there's a lot of
1: Democratic candidates running, and in- Red or purple states, who are looking at your win right now in Alabama and asking, "How do I become the next Doug Jones?" <laughs> uh, what What do you tell them? What advice do you have for folks running in uh, in red states like Alabama?
3: Well, you know, I don't know. Every state is is different, and you know what we just des- uh, decided early on in this in this race was that we were going to stay true to ourselves and stay true to what we believe and our core principles, and I think that that helped. I think people are tired of folks running one way in a primary and a different way in the general election. And we stayed very true to who we are. And I think people are looking for that because if you stay true, but also talk to people about how you can, you know, your whole mantra is to try to find common ground. Uh, I think that that helps a lot because everyone knows that there's no way uh, in the world that someone is going to agree with you on a hundred percent of your positions And if if you approach them by saying and recognizing that and say, you know, look, but we can find common ground on a lot of them, but on the ones that we can't, you know, let's just uh, agree to disagree, but not be disagreeable. And, you know, we'll find it on something else. And I I really think at least so many of the people in Alabama were looking for that kind of approach. You know, so much of the political
2: discussion around the country, and even as we were talking about the Alabama race, is centered around the "quote unquote" Trump base and then the "quote unquote" resistance. But this election and the elections in Virginia, uh, in New Jersey, recently were not decided by that. I'm just curious, what as you were traveling the state and just talking to average everyday people in Alabama, what were you hearing from them about how they feel things are going on in the country and how they're sort of viewing Washington in the Trump era here?
3: Well, I think that they're tired of the dysfunction. I think that they're really want to see something happening. I think they're they you know, what we saw back in the summer was that people started looking at these health care bills and these proposals that were coming out on that was strictly repeal and replace. And the replacements just didn't weren't sitting very well with folks. It was, you know, a lot of people were going to be uninsured. Uh, it seemed to be more of a political score rather than a really a score for the people. And so I think folks started really focusing on those issues a lot. And, and you get past who you might have voted for in the past, you get past the party label. Now you've still got a base on both sides of the political world out there. But I think the middle, uh, increased exponentially in Alabama. Uh, over the course of this election, you've uh, that seems to be what we heard and what we saw. People just really wanted their, they they don't like what they're seeing going on up there. They're uh, this is a pretty conservative state. But at the same time, they want a, somebody that can be effective for them and not just be a lapdog for any any one party or another. So I think that helped us a great deal was really uh, focusing on issues, what we call those kitchen table issues that spoke to people directly about their everyday lives.
1: So African Americans turned out for you in record numbers, uh, certainly put you over the top, helped you win the election. You also did better among white voters than previous Democrats uh, had in Alabama. How do you hold that coalition together going forward and what can you do in the Senate to make sure that black voters feel as though they made the right decision?
3: Well, you know, look, I think that in terms of Alabama, uh, I think my background uh, and my history with the African-American community uh, in this state helped a lot. Uh, there was there's still a lot of just incredible, wonderful feelings I get in the in the African-American community about the church bombing case uh, that was prosecuted when I was U.S. attorney. But I've also been there on other things and I've spoken up uh, for You know, disadvantaged minorities in this state uh, all along. So I think going forward, I think it's going to be important to try to work with Congresswoman Terry Sewell, who represents that black belt area down there uh, in, um, you know, through uh, Hale County and those Bullock County and those folks. To try to get, you know, their education system up to up to par to get the workforce development in there. There's a lot of programs down there that I think we can work on. And I think just being seen and being trying to be a partner, as I said, I would uh, with those folks is going to be especially important. Uh, Holding coalitions together is Always a challenge because, you know, one coalition might not like something that another coalition does. Again, I think the issue for me is being out there and being able to listen and learn and, and, and taking all of it in to try to find those areas where we can agree to move forward. Uh, it's a fragile coalition. I recognize that. But at the same time, I think that this state is also moving in a direction in which uh, people are getting a lot of those divisive issues uh, behind us. And those coalitions are a lot easier in a state like Alabama when you can put certain divisive issues aside and say, you know, I respect your opinion on that. We might not agree. Let's talk about your kid's education. Let's talk about your job and see if I can get you a higher wage. And let's talk about that health care, because you know what? you got a parent or aunt and uncle or someone in a, in a nursing home. You've got your own pre-existing conditions. Let's talk about those issues and see what we can do to fix health care. I think that if we focus on those issues and continue to focus on those issues, those coalitions can stick together and hopefully build on. One of the things on Pod Save America we're always trying to do is encourage people to run for office. And I'm
2: curious about your thinking when you originally decided to run for this race, because it had to feel... Like, at best, a long shot, and probably people telling you it's a fool's errand for a Democrat to run for Senate in Alabama. Sort of what was your mindset going into, and what made you want to run to begin with?
3: Well, look, I appreciate that question because it's very simple. I did hear all of that. It was a long shot. It was a, uh, you know, I, my early contributions were from friends who said, Doug, you, we, there's no way that you can win this, but we appreciate what you're doing, and you're our friend, so here's some money. What I have told people in this state for a long time, in a state in which we have seen Democrats conceding far too many races, not just on a state level, but even on a local level for the House and the Senate and for county commission races and things like that, that, you know, we've got to start building a bench. And before you can ever have any success, good people need to run for office. They need to put themselves out there knowing that it's an uphill battle, knowing that it's a long shot. But if we don't start having folks uh, get out there and start really, again, staying true to yourself on what you believe and not listen to a bunch of people telling you, "Oh my Lord, if you can just if you can just move all the way as far to the right as your opponent, then you can win this race." Just don't do that. Stay in your lane on what you believe, and let's start building platforms. And we may you may not win this race, but you might set the stage. You know, uh, my friend Joe Biden, who came down and. And campaigned for me. Told me one time with a a small group, and he's told a lot of people this the story of of how I, when he was elected at age 29, and since in the intervening years. People come to him all the time that want to run for office or are running and said, you know, what? what is it that I can say that will win this race? And he says, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, what are you going to say in which you're prepared to lose? And I've told people all the time, you need to be able to stay true to yourself, be prepared to lose, and hope for the best. So that was my mindset going in. I knew it was an uphill battle, but I knew we had very, a very thin bench in Alabama. Things needed to be said. People needed to be given some hope that there are actually people out there that, that believe in them, uh that want to work for them and and as much as anything i felt like it was the timing was right to make have that message to try to reach across as many people as we can and and i will tell you guys even before the disturbing allegations against roy moore we were getting traction with that message from people from all walks of life in areas that we never dreamed that we would get
2: doug you ran a very alabama centric race as you said here, it was very. in uh, your message and your agenda is very Alabama-centric. But you have also become, by virtue of your victory, a hero to Democrats all across the country. You know, I saw photos of people who wrote "Roll Tide" on the, <laughs> you know, on subway signs in New York. The Golden State Warriors played Sweet Home Alabama at their practice yesterday in tribute to you. How do? How does the? I'm just curious how you feel about that. About this this role that's been thrust upon you as a as a hero to. <laughs> forlorn Democrats across the country.
3: Well, that's pretty overwhelming. Uh, it's humbling. I am honored. I've never seen it that way. I knew that if we could win this race, it would send a a positive message, not just to Democrats, but uh, everyone, that we can put a lot of divisiveness behind us. Uh, we wanted to focus on Alabama because it is a it has been a tough state for Democrats to win in, but also, I, I truly believe that we have so much more in common. And I think what you're seeing, that demonstration uh, from people around the country proves that the people of this country have more in common than we have to divide us. And our politics have gotten so divisive. We just need to put some of that on a shelf for a little bit. And let's talk about those things we have in common so that we can work together.
1: So, Doug, in 2010, after Scott Brown won a special election to fill Ted Kennedy's seat, He argued that he should be seated without delay, and senators in both parties, Republicans and Democrats, agreed with him, and they all waited to vote on the Affordable Care Act until he was seated. A couple days ago, the people of Alabama voted to replace a senator who was for the tax bill with you, who campaigned against it. You said you were troubled by the tax cuts for the wealthy. It also includes partial Obamacare repeal. You talked about people being upset about health care. This could leave millions more uninsured. Don't you think that the people of Alabama's voice should be heard by making sure that you get a vote on this bill that's going to affect their lives in such a big way?
3: Well, you know, look, I think you can certainly look at it that way for sure. You know, I haven't tried to interfere with any of that at this point. We've still got a a process in Alabama that we have to go through to certify the election results and to make sure that everything is there. And I I am absolutely 100 percent confident Uh, that our margin of victory is likely to increase rather than decrease once provisionals are are looked at and military ballots come in. Uh, So I'm Mm -hmm. confident of the win, but I also know how things move in Washington, D.C., and the uh, timing with regard to uh, the holidays is an important consideration here. So, you know, sure, I want to get up there. I want to be sworn in as soon as I I can. I think the people of Alabama deserve that, but I'm not going to push one way or another i'm going to let this process play out a little bit i'm not sure quite frankly the vote will even be needed but we'll see how that goes i'm i'm just excited to even be in the middle of this discussion right now
1: but you would like to be able to vote on this tax bill if the alabama secretary of state certified the election wouldn't you you'd probably like to be seated as well, soon as possible right
3: well obviously you would like to be seated as soon as possible uh, this is a special election so there there is no term I do think the circumstances are a little bit different with with Scott Brown because of the timing. But, yeah, obviously, I'd like to be up there as soon as possible to start making any decisions that I can uh, on behalf of the people of the state. We'll We'll just see how that plays out.
1: Okay. Doug Jones? Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it, and again, congratulations uh, on the big win, Dan. Did you have anything else?
3: Uh, I just wanted
2: to mention to Doug that many, many years ago, I worked with your son-in-law Rip on the Gore campaign together. Awesome. And he was phenomenal, and we're very. I was very excited to see him standing on stage behind you on Tuesday night.
3: Well, he he and I talked uh, this morning, and, and it's uh, wonderful for our family and. And as famous as his father-in-law is now, I think that beautiful little four-year-old daughter of his uh, stole the show on the (laughs) stage the other night and uh, is an internet sensation on her own. So thank you for saying that.
1: Thanks, Doug. Take care.
3: All right, guys. Thanks again. And I hope to do it again with you.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends.
4: Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash
1: events. On the pod today, we have back again Senator Cory Booker. Senator, thanks for joining us.
0: It's so good to be on. Thank you for having me again.
1: Absolutely. So I know you were down in uh, Alabama campaigning with Doug Jones. Uh, big win there we're all excited about. I've seen a few Democrats say, look at the results and say that Alabama shows us that the Democratic Party doesn't have to focus so much on winning white, non-college-educated voters anymore, that the results teach us that. What do you think of that argument?
0: I don't know what they're looking at in Alabama. Alabama was a race where Doug Jones and the campaign down there did everything. and They didn't give up one vote. and They didn't cede one county. They won the counties they needed to by huge margins and cut into the margins in counties even that they lost. This was a comprehensive campaign. And even some, to reduce it to just a left versus right, I really think this was a right versus wrong campaign. And uh, there's a lot to learn. I think the black voter engagement efforts we did, finally, they they and I got involved very early for this reason because I wanted to see us making sure we were really doing the kind of grassroots mobilizing. I was really proud of that effort. But this is something that Doug Jones and his campaign won because they were able to convince Republicans to come out uh, and support them. Uh, they were able to convince white, rural whites to support them, and they were obviously able to hit a lot of our base really, really well.
1: We, uh, so we just, we just spoke with uh, Doug Jones and asked him about you know, doesn't he think he should be seated without delay – Especially before the uh, this tax vote, and he said you know well i'll I'll let everyone in Washington work that out. He didn't really take a position what What do you think about that
0: Alabama uh, as a state, the people of Alabama have spoken. he should be seated right away, uh, and again, I know they have some processes to go through down there, either he should be seated right away or we should wait uh, before we make." vote, especially as consequential as rewriting the entire tax code, shifting hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to the wealthiest corporations, the wealthiest individuals, blowing a $1.5 trillion hole in our deficit, Uh, the damaging impact, far-reaching impact, not just to this generation, but generations yet unborn. This is so big that Alabama has made their decision, made their voice clear uh, their representative in the Senate is Doug Jones. He should be here for something so important. Senator, you've made a
2: pledge against funding the government with absent action on the DREAM Act. There have been some reports in recent days that the Democrats in the Senate and Congress are, are are maybe willing to fund the government without demanding action on the DREAM Act. Do you stand by your pledge? And what can you tell
0: us about the emerging democratic strategy here? I can't tell you much. I know there's a scrum. I, I talk to leadership As often as I can, I'm part of a a, a leadership group that meets with Schumer on Tuesday mornings. I know that this is a priority to him. I know that Dick Durbin, frankly, uh, there's no one in the Democratic caucus who's fought harder, stood up um, more and longer than Dick Durbin has for DREAMers. And he is uh, one of our highest ranking people that's in these negotiations. So I know this is a priority for us. And uh, for me, uh, again, this is one of those larger issues that is about the soul of our country, Uh, These are folks in my state. I have dreamers who are first responders, dreamers who have uh, started businesses. Uh, I talked about one from the Senate floor employs like 800 people. These are folks that wear our uniforms, 900 in the United States military. They are American citizens in every way uh, except for a piece of paper. To send them back is to break up families, send many of them back to countries where they don't even speak the language. They don't have any memory whatsoever. It is unjust. Uh, It is a surrendering of our values. It's an assault. And for me knowing that we are a nation that has always had to overcome the denial of full citizenship rights for women – Uh, for African-Americans, for others, um, we should not be denying citizenship rights for these folks who have proven their patriotism, not with their words or their pledges, but how they're living their lives, the sacrifices they're making, the contributions to our country, and frankly, even just the economic analysis of the billions of dollars they're contributing to our economy. To remove them would be a self-inflicted wound, not just to our economy, but to our moral values themselves. But you, just to follow up, you will not vote
2: to fund the government without Action on the Dreamers, regardless of what the rest of the what the rest of the Senate leadership decides to do.
0: Again, I voted against uh, the the last uh, CR. Uh, this is something I'm going to probably vote against if it doesn't have. This is something I will vote against if it doesn't have the the, the Dreamers in it. Um, it should not come to that. There should be a way to make a deal. But again, I I, ca- I cannot allow ourselves to go into the new year without having addressed what I think is a moral issue in our country. I, I stand with dreamers. Uh, and I will use, uh, I'm just one uh, senator, but I'm going to use every bit of leverage I have on the upcoming vote.
1: Do you feel the same way about the um, fully funding for the children's health insurance program? I know that's been held up. And do you see a path forward on that? Do you see making a deal on that? I know the House bill that's come over has all kinds of cuts and other health care programs as a precondition of uh, extending CHIP. Do you think we'll get a clean vote on CHIP or at least clean funding?
0: Well, you, you know that this is absolutely, again, something that is outrageous to our values. I was happy to hear Doug Jones speak about that uh, in his concession speech. So here we are two months into uh, having uh, the uh, reauthorization expire. This is outrageous that we are not providing uh, health care for these millions of American children who, by the way, again, the moral right thing to do is often the economically right thing to do. Investing in the health care of children Saves money in their long term over the life of over their lives. This is absolutely outrageous that we're not doing it. I hate the fact that this is in a negotiation. Republicans might be trying to lord over us to say, "Okay, we're going to give you health care for kids if you give us, you know, what another tax break for the wealthiest amongst us." It's it's ridiculous. We should be doing this. This is a bipartisan effort. That's origins are bipartisan. This should be bipartisan. The fact that we're about to pass a major tax bill. That is going to uh, give corporations who are already at an 80-year high in in uh, corporate profits, uh, under this theory that it's going to somehow trickle down. Uh, when we know what the corporations are doing with 80, 90 percent of their profits, which is dividend payments, uh, stock buybacks. The fact that somehow we haven't had the time to do what is morally right for my Christian evangelical colleagues, for my fiscally conservative colleagues, things that's in the line with all of them is unacceptable. And so I'm, I'm again, fighting. These are You're hitting all the pain points here from DACA to uh, CHIP. Um, we need to get these things done before we go home, or we should stay. Senator, as
2: you know, today's the five-year anniversary of Sandy Hook. And in those five years, there have been exactly zero legislative actions taken to prevent something like Sandy Hook from happening again. And now, obviously, we know this is the fault of Republicans and the NRA and others. But what can Democrats do to change the equation? And what what would your message be to to voters who are to the public who are so frustrated by the inaction on guns?
0: And I, and I just because I'm on I'm on a show of friends, you know, I just want to call out to you the fact that I'm very very pained. I literally wept when Sandy Hook happened, but. You know we have a mass murder in the United States, an effective mass murder in the United States every single day if you aggregate all the people that get shot. yeah, And uh, they live uh, – often these are concentrated in communities like the one in which I live in. I'm the uh, – I think the only senator maybe ever that's gone home to an inner city, majority-minority community below the poverty line or at least median income in my area is about $14,000. I had a shooting on my block uh, uh, earlier this year, right across the street from where I live. I know that we focus in on these mass shootings uh, and we seem not to give attention to, uh, or, or in my opinion, sufficient attention to, that every single day people, children, are being murdered in this country. Often they're poor, often they're minority, but every single life matters. And our moral outrage in, in how preventable this is When I was mayor, I used to get so upset that one of the the leading groups that were murdered in my my city were women who are victims of domestic violence. And in states that just do the common sense thing of having background checks, thorough background checks, which the overwhelming majority of NRA members agree on, you see 40% reductions in murder of people by their intimates, by their partners. And so... I know we want to use this anniversary, but for those of us that live in communities where gunfire is heard too damn often, every day should be a day that we recognize it is absolutely unacceptable that this country has not done what over 80% of us believe needs to be done, common sense gun safety, things like background checks, so that known criminals, spousal abusers, terrorists— can't go on the internet or go to a gun show and fill up with a trunk full, load full of weapons and kill people, which happens every single day. So I say this to folks all the time that ask me, why can't Congress get this done? And my response is the civil rights movement didn't wait and for Congress to get it done or for Strom Thurmond to suddenly decide that, hey, maybe blacks deserve the right to vote. The suffrage movement Didn't wait for Congress for the men in Congress to give their to to somehow charitably give the rights for women in this country to vote. It was people that were sick and tired, fed up, fought and demanded it, and brought that change. And that's what we we need more of: anger. Outrage and letting folks know that we're holding you accountable uh, uh, if you don't do the most common sense thing. This isn't about reversing the Heller decision. Uh, it's not about uh, uh, taking away people's guns. It's about doing the most basic things we should be doing uh, to protect the lives of of, of children, of women of American citizens it, it is crazy that we have not done it and 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 our outrage should drive us to keep working until the day that the legislation passes in the Senate and the House
1: it is it is crazy i mean do do you think there's a path you know, at the state level, at the local level, and, and passing some laws while we, you know, wait for and work for a Congress that's actually going to pass these laws. I mean, you know, what do you say to all we the people just, say we, we need we just, some kind of action now? The right?
0: House is priority on guns. I know. Be that to, to try to make make concealed carry reciprocity. I, I mean, that's their focus right now. And and I know you're asking me about the states, but you're seeing that the gun industry that thrives on an environment where they could sell guns to people that maybe not should buy them, driving so much of this. And they are over their weight. They are not the majority. Again, as I said, the majority of NRA members believe in common sense reform. So we should fight everywhere on this. We should fight in, in cities. We should fight in counties, state level. This should be something to protect human life because we are all one of these mass murders or, frankly, as I've seen, uh, too many uh, folks get caught in gunfire. Too many folks, nobody should be dying in this way. So I'm hoping that that all of us keep this in mind as we go into the midterm elections to make this a priority in our voting and a priority in, in our small-dollar contributions to candidates.
1: Senator, uh, you introduced a bill, along with Lindsey Graham, that would require the Attorney General to get permission from a federal court before firing the special counsel over the last week. We've seen Republicans and a lot of folks in the right-wing media trying to imply that the FBI is somehow corrupt, trying to say that we need a second special counsel to investigate the special counsel. How worried are you about all this? And you know, is, Do you see any progress in making sure that uh, Mueller's investigation is protected?
0: Yeah, well, look, there's an insidious attack going on, uh, a campaign going on, uh, trying to delegitimize a guy who is one of those folks who has that, one of those careers that's beyond reproach. It's unfortunate and I think it shows that they're worried and they're concerned um, that this could lead into one of the handful of real constitutional crises we have – we've had in American history. And, and the problem is – what really frustrates me is we get closer to another major election. I just had a meeting earlier today about what foreign interference in our election. This, the, the Russians are still working, uh, not just in our country, but in Latvia, Lithuania, France – England, they're still working to to undermine Western democracy as we know it. And, And so as opposed to joining in a bipartisan effort to hold people accountable, to defend our country, and to stop the Russians from shaking our democracy, we're playing into this by creating more mass confusion, less confidence in our institutions, less confidence in the rule of law. And it's just, it's despicable to me. And so I'm very grateful that for Lindsey Graham that he and I both understand that for now and, and for the future, we should create a common sense checks and balances on the special counsel law and make sure that there is a true cause uh, should a special counsel be removed. And, and and I know having a lot of conversations with others trying to get more support, more bipartisan support behind this bill, and, and I'm hoping that we can move it forward. And again, as you know – that will all come to the test of whether Mitch McConnell would be willing to put something like this on the floor.
1: And last question, just to go back to Alabama, I know you were down there campaigning pretty hard. It was an improbable victory, but uh, what does it tell you about what the Democratic Party should say and do moving forward? What, what kind of what impressions do you take from the Alabama race?
0: Well, first of all, you pick great candidates, and you know Doug Jones is an extraordinary person. I, I can't wait for America to get to know him better, and, and a lot of credit has to go to him and his team. But I'm just somebody. I wouldn't be on this interview with you right now. When I ran my first election, we were running against the incumbent establishment in Newark, New Jersey, and we we didn't have you know the kind of resources for TV. Didn't have money for a poll. We just went to everybody's doors, had real substantive contact. That's what they did. You know, I, I um, there's a name that should be being talked about more in the press, but uh, Rich McDaniel, who was a field director. Uh, when I hit the ground there uh for a crazy intense marathon weekend of campaigning uh when he started breaking down the numbers of of direct face to face contacts, the million plus phone calls uh the mobilization that was going, turning activist groups i mean you literally saw you know uh former sharecroppers out there. Driving people to the polls, uh, as one report my staff just showed me, just an incredible grassroots effort. That's how you win elections. And we've got to replicate that now. And and there's a lot to learn from this election in terms of just mobilizing, energizing, and substantively engaging. And as a guy that's, uh, and, and I'll confess this to you, I fly all around the country trying to help candidates out. And the thing, I, when, when I go into especially a black community and I hear from ministers and they say to me, why do folk only show up when it's election time? I know that that's a major problem. You know, democracies – the work of our democracy can't be an every two-year thing or every four-year thing. It has to be an everyday thing uh, where we're engaging communities in substantive ways on issues that matter to them and getting folks to the polls. And when you can build that kind of trust with people – and by the way, this – You know We're a nation that has a common pain, but we we fail to have a common purpose. But if you really can connect with people on that larger sense of purpose, I think we're going to see what we've seen in Virginia, what we saw in New Jersey, what we definitely saw in Alabama is a renewal of our democracy, a re-flourishing of our democracy, where people are beginning to understand that it's not a spectator sport. You can't just sit on the sideline and uh, nonchalantly root for your team, red or blue, but it's a full-contact participatory endeavor when good people don't vote, bad things happen. Uh, and and sometimes, as we saw in Alabama, bad people could be elected. But when good people vote and participate, good things happen. And we've got to get back to communicating that at the grassroots level through constant working in the garden of our democracy. We do that. We're going to reap a harvest that the entire country will benefit from. That, to me, is what uh, Alabama uh, indicates. And I hope it's a strategy. It's one that I'm pushing around here all the time uh, that we got to get back to connecting to voters where they are on issues that matter to them.
1: Well, we couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Senator Booker, for joining us. And uh, and please come back again soon.
0: No, thank you. Thank you, guys. Your podcast nurtures, nourishes, energizes, uh, fires me up, as well as informs me uh, so I just want to thank you all for doing what you do. Really, this is a, a tremendous service you're providing. And I said this when I was talking to radio stations down in Alabama. In American history and, and black history in particular, uh, radio, and, which is the, I guess a modern version of that is podcasts, really was a, one of the more powerful forces for social change. And you guys, what you guys are doing uh, are so important and I love the fact that you guys have become a little bit of rock stars. I'm watching you on your public <laughs> events these days. Um, so I know that you're not in it for that at all, guys. But 2017 uh, um, has been a weird, year, really Senator, weird. a weird year, Senator, a weird year. But what you're doing is really important to a lot of folks who are looking for hope and looking for light. I know Alabama, I think, is a, the first ray of a new day to come, but you guys are – Uh, doing a lot of work and helping to keep hope alive frankly so thank
1: you well that's very kind of you to say and uh, thank you and keep up the fight in the senate you're doing great work there too thank you guys all the best take care all right that's our show for today thank you again to doug jones and senator cory booker for joining us and we'll see you again next week bye guys bye